Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University broadcasting live from the Richard Philip Cavallero studio. That was good for you by Olivia Rodrigo to start our morning. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call where we're talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your producer, Alexa Servo, joined by Danny DiCrescenzo, Dallas Jackson, and our reporter, Lauren Ballinger. Today we will be discussing the Rovers Wade uh, law, the Met Gala, and a new space hotel. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Good Alexa. morning to our n- new Thursday producer. Uh, you know what? The, <laughs> I the guess script has so. been very much flipped right now. Oh, yes. It's Things a, are feeling odd, but it's, that's okay. It's, it's, is this the Twilight Zone? It, is this, this is the Twilight <laughs> Zone? You know what? I've been asking myself the same question, but we actually have a lot to discuss today, so I kind of want to jump right into the first story um so i put this one in the rundown so i will take over the supreme court has voted to strike down the landmark rovers wade decision according to an initial draft majority opinion written by justice samuel alito circulated inside the court and obtained by politico the draft opinion which is labeled as a first draft of the majority opinion and circulated among the judges on february 10th is basically just a firm rejection of the 1973 decision that guaranteed federal constitutional protections of abortion rights and the following 1992 decision planned parenthood versus casey which maintained that right alito writes in the document quote Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. The immediate impact of the ruling as drafted in February would be to end the guarantee of federal constitutional protection of abortion rights and allow each state to decide whether to restrict or banned abortion. As of now, it's unclear if there have been any subsequent changes to the draft. No draft decision in the modern history of the court has been released to the public like this while a case was still pending. So the unprecedented revelation is bound to like intensify the debate over what was already the most controversial case on the docket this term. A person who's familiar with the court deliberations said that four of the Republican appointed justices, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, had voted with Alito in the conference held among the justices after hearing the oral arguments in December and still agree as of this week. The three Democratic appointed justices, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan, are working on one or more dissents, according to this person. How Chief Justice John Roberts will ultimately vote and whether he will join an already written opinion or draft of his own is extremely unclear what are you guys thinking Mm, the vibes when i saw this like break the news were atrocious i'm gonna be honest and i literally thought about this a little bit ago i am sick of living through like historical political events can we take a pause on that for the rest of my life because this is a little too much and i guess like i understand people are very upset about or from what I've seen on Twitter, people are very upset about the fact that it got leaked and they're like, oh, justices aren't even allowed to have the space to like deliberate in private anymore and stuff like that. But for me, I feel like if five out of nine justices can affect like uh, millions of people's like life and safety and their health, then I feel like we should know what they're thinking. Like we should be allowed to know what they're thinking if this could be such a like influential thing national on a national level, if that makes sense. I agree. It's just not how the court works, unfortunately. But I have a few I have a few points. Because this debate 
is, is a legal debate. It's not about whether abortion is murder or whether life begins at conception. This debate is over the rights of women to choose what they do with their bodies. It's a legal debate, like I said, that involves the right to privacy as a status, as a right, not just in abortion, but in general. And according to precedent, the court has honored the right to privacy as it pertains to abortion. I am super inclined to agree with what Justice Sotomayor said in oral arguments for this case in December. Let's take a listen to what she said. Marbury versus Madison. There is not anything in the Constitution that says that the court, the Supreme Court, is the last word on what the Constitution means. It was totally novel at that time. And yet what the court did was reason from the structure of the Constitution that that's what was intended. And here in Casey and in Roe, the court said there is inherent in our structure that there are certain personal decisions that belong to individuals and the states can't intrude on them. Seems pretty legit, right? Think about how this has stood and stood as was for, you know, since 1973. So every Supreme Court justice who ran, who was nominated on the fact that they will uphold president precedent were at worst misconstruing their actual judicial philosophy or at best just straight up lying to Congress. Uh, we're going to hear about more, more about that in a little bit. But in terms of actual abortions, if this draft opinion turns out to be just a predecessor to the final one, abortions won't go away. Legal abortions will. And their accessibility for women over the, across the country will fade. The average woman seeking an abortion will have to travel over 100 miles, probably across state lines. Imagine if you're in Texas. You want to go to Louisiana? You can't. Sorry. You want to go to Mississippi? Oh, you can't. The Mississippi is the state that's bringing this case before the court. So there are a bunch of, especially if you're in the Bible Belt, you're going to have to go really far to get an abortion. And... I am so frustrated by the fact that people don't understand that being pro-life and pro-choice aren't are compatible. Mm -hmm. They are compatible positions. You can disapprove of abortion morally, but you can approve of a woman's right to choose. Bill Clinton said it best in the 90s, make abortion safe, easy, and rare. The country, my last point is that the country is definitely lurking backwards and an uncertain pregnancy for a woman will now turn for millions of them into a certain uncertain future because mm -hmm. there's no rape protection, no incest protection. Imagine if you're a teenager and you have to go through this, or maybe even younger, a preteen. I, I mean, I'm sure you guys have read testimonials yeah. from uh, cl clinicians, uh, OBGYNs who've talked about patients who were in their early teens, not even teenagers who've had to deal with abortions mm -hmm. or people who've you know, died due to giving themselves self-inflicted abortions. The I have so much I could say about this, like, because I actually, you know, thanks uh, AP Civics, AP Gov <laughs> in high school for getting AP me into Gov. AP Gov for getting me into how the Supreme Court works and how the justices believe what the justices actually believe. But I, I to, to keep it short, the ramifications of this decision go far beyond what the court thinks. It'll go like when you get to the boots on the ground aspect of it, it's going to be a catastrophe. See, that's a lot of what I wanted to talk about is the fact that, you know. Politics aside, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, you need you need to realize that overturning Roe vs. Wade is not going to stop abortions like you said. It's just going to make them extremely unsafe. People who have, you know, maybe they don't have access to travel as far as they need to um, to be able to get that abortion if it's needed. And they are going to try to do it by themselves. And that's extremely dangerous. And it's going to lead to a lot of injuries and even deaths of hundreds of people 
thousands of people even um if this becomes the case but uh danny i believe you had an interview on this that you want to talk about this actually wasn't from me it wasn't my interview i know it's crazy a thursday morning (sighs) interview not from danny wow crazy um but this was actually an interview so i was engineering newsline on wednesday and this was the most brilliant brilliant interview i've ever heard about this topic it came from Dr. Tracy Pearson, a legal analyst and an attorney who has appeared for Crime Network. And she interviewed uh, with Kate O'Brien and Amory Lepard. I was engineering that interview over the phone. And she gave a nine-minute, just such a incredible breakdown of this revelation, not just the, you know, the, Kate, the, the decision being released unintentionally, but also the ramifications of it and the philosophical, the the judicial aspects of it. I'm just going to stop talking because we need to get into this, but here's Dr. Tracy Pearson. Joining us now to break down this leaked opinion is legal analyst who who appears on the Law, Law and Crime Network and a former trial and appellate attorney, Dr. Tracy Pearson. Dr. Pearson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So to start us off, can you explain the difference between what has been leaked versus what an actual opinion is? Yes, that's a great question. An opinion of the U.S. Supreme Court has completed a process involving conferencing, voting, and drafting, and has been reviewed and ultimately finalized by by all of the voting justices. Um, That official opinion is then delivered typically orally in court and at a minimum made available to the public. It will also eventually be published in the U.S. reports, which is the record of official decisions of the court. Um, What was disclosed was a draft opinion, and it has not completed that process. It will not at this time be published in the U.S. reports. But if I could, I would urge journalists to stop referring to this as a leak and instead as a disclosure. Um, Leak has a character to it that may be unfair, and whomever released this document could arguably be considered to be a whistleblower. Um, A whistleblower is protected by law. A leaker is not. And a whistleblower has a right to disclose information to anyone if this information is not classified or its disclosure is not specifically prohibited by statute. And while the inner workings of the U.S. Supreme Court are secretive, they aren't governed by statute and are by no means classified. Whomever released this opinion may, in fact, be protected under various whistleblowing laws. Thank you for the note about the disclosure. So breaking that down a little bit more, John Roberts confirmed that it was indeed authentic. How unusual is this to happen? It is an explosive discovery because though there have been instances, it is highly rare. Um, The court has really prided itself on operating in secret, as I said, and very little regulates them, as we've seen with uh, the dust-up with um, uh, one of the justices involving the January 6th investigation. Um, whomever decided to disclose this draft opinion probably felt they had no other choice. Now, ironically, in 1973, the Roe decision legalizing abortion was disclosed to a reporter. But because of publication deadlines, it went public before it became a scoop. Um, in the 70s, Tim O'Brien from ABC had maybe six scoops on rulings, with the source being believed to be from the print shop uh, in the court. Now, Justice Roberts has requested that the courts marshal investigate this circumstance, and we'll probably learn more about who disclosed it. Um, And it shouldn't be too hard to find out. Almost every printer in the country has a unique metadata that prints on documents, and if it's there, 
it may help us get closer to who released the document. Now, obviously, a lot of this falls on the courts, but is there any way for the Biden administration or Congress to fight or influence the coming decision? Well, Congress can always pass laws. And so if if they want, they can pass a law that uh, legalizes abortion. And there is a a bill that's pending. It's been passed, I believe, by the House. uh, And it's it's up to the Senate to, to take that through the process and for the president to sign it into law. Um, technically, I suppose the president could issue an executive order, but that would just end up in a, in a fight up to the Supreme Court. And what is the coming fallout of this decision if it does indeed come to pass? The list is long. Um, when it comes to abortion rights, if this opinion is, is substantially what becomes the official opinion, there will be no federal right to abortion, and the Supreme Court will have taken away a right from more than half the population of the country. And in my opinion, essentially de- engaged in discrimination against every female in the United States. Um, the ability to seek an abortion uh, will be left to the states to decide. And in states that recognize women as equal and valued members of society, there will be abortion. And in states that see women as less than, women will have no right to abortion and will potentially be subjected to criminal prosecution. And we see that as a potential in states like Missouri. Uh, There are trigger laws that have been passed where right now abortion is legal, but if Roe v. Wade is overruled, then a law springs into effect that will make it illegal and would subject any doctor who performs that abortion to being charged with a Class B felony and suspension and revocation of their license. And get this, would also open the mother up to being charged with conspiracy to commit that felony. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that abortion won't be performed. It just won't be performed legally in states that ban it. And women and girls will seek unsafe options. Um, In some states with these laws, there's no exceptions for rape, incest, or even ectopic pregnancy. We'll see more female deaths by unsafe abortion or suicide, as was the case prior to Roe v. Wade, if we look back at those statistics. Um, Women with means will have the ability to seek abortion out of state, though some states are seeking to make that a crime. Poor women will continue to be poor and probably get poorer. We will have more poor families, um, more uh, poor single moms, more child neglect, more foster kids, and a poorer quality of life for women. Women's choices and ability to achieve parity in the workforce will be extinguished. And there will probably be more employment discrimination against uh, cases against employers. And there will probably be more men paying child support and more men with children outside of marriage. So there may even be more divorce. That is a truly massive list of impacts. Another question I had related to that, um, Roe v. Wade essentially hinges on the right to privacy. What happens to cases that maybe they don't concern abortion, but they do concern this right to privacy? Is something going to change with this? That's a really great question, and, and you're right. The potential for follow doesn't end with, with my list. Um, the reasoning in the draft is a faulty. Um, it's based on the Tenth Amendment, and as you noted, uh, it's to paraphrase that all uh, powers not listed in the Constitution are left to the states, whereas the Ninth Amendment that they choose to ignore is understood to mean that all rights are, that aren't listed are not intended to be the only federal rights that one has. So what that means... Um, to to break it all down, 
is that anything founded on the Tenth Amendment, like the right to privacy, founded on Griswold v. Connecticut, a case that is the base of many rights, like marital privacy, same-sex marriage, to contraception, to interracial marriage under Loving v. Virginia, and more, are subject to reversal if Roe is subject to reversal based on their inane analysis. And so how, if all, does this potential decision affect the court's claims of nonpartisanship? I think that Justice Sotomayor spelled it out during the Dobbs oral argument that the court will not withstand the stench of this decision. Uh, The court's legitimacy was slipping already, and frankly, it'll disappear. Uh, It will ultimately be seen as an arm of the Republican Party. Um, Overturning Roe overturns not one case, but multiple cases. And it's been a goal since 1973 for the Republicans to overturn Roe. Um, frankly, in my view, it's the only platform position that the public knows. And by refusing to uh, allow President Obama to exercise the right to put a, a justice on the Supreme Court, um, they packed the court with enough justices to make abortion illegal, succeeding in that goal. And frankly, you know, any Supreme Court justice that votes for this and who sat through confirmation hearings proclaiming that stare decisis, meaning that cases are decided like similar cases, um, was a grounding principle for the court is is was dishonest and and lying through their teeth. Um, it goes beyond partisan politics, though, and I think that 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 is an easy sort of answer to this. And it, frankly, it may reflect an infiltration of our court with people who are allowing their religion to dictate our laws, which is explicitly prohibited by the most important amendment, the First Amendment. We've covered a lot of ground here. Is there anything that we didn't ask you that you'd like to add? You know, I, I, I'm grateful that you're doing this story. And what I would ask is that people take action. If they disagree with this decision, take action. Uh, you know, the First Amendment is critically important and you should speak out. You should write. You should contact your representatives and you should urge action by Congress. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Enjoying the show? Make sure to tune in every weekday from 8 to 9 a.m. for some more Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. Only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. All right. Danny, you were right. It was a very insightful interview. I'm glad that you brought that to the show this morning so we could have a little bit more discussion about it. Um... I definitely think it's something that, you know, anything that people could do right, try to get your voices heard, because I feel like at this point, Roe Wade is not something that should be. Call your senators. Call your senators. Blow oh. up their phone. Although, honestly, like, for someone living in New Jersey mm-hmm. with two senators who are pro-choice, what is, you know, you feel like. I feel the same way. Like, coming from Massachusetts, I feel secure with myself but it's unfortunate because people are going to be have this sort of people some people not everybody are Mm -hmm. going to have this tribal aspect to it where they feel like well you know if i live in a blue state and and abortion safe here like you know it's that's what i always think about like the fact how much migration could we see like across state lines i'm sure there's going to be some some sort of migration 100 there's going to be a a very big shift i think i think a lot a lot more than we think is going to mm-hmm. change is going to change. And I think that's something that needs to be considered when this is actually discussed. And I think they said June they were going to talk Sooner. about it. Sooner. Sooner than June? Sooner. Well, it could be by the end of the month. Well, like I said, I Here guess. Here goes. Sit tight, folks. Sit tight, folks. Buckle up. <laughs> yeah.
Christ. Okay, so let's move on as much as I feel like we could probably talk about this for a lot longer because there's a lot to say. We have another interview um, from the great Danny about Democratic <laughs> the great? presidential Danny the, the great. Gr- Danny the Danny, great? Danny the wise. Danny, Danny the, the great. Wise. Danny Franny. Danny oh. always has some interviews coming in. I think that's all he does. <laughs> I've been I've been in the lab this week. In he 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 literally does like four to five interviews a week. I've I think. been cooking. Uh, <laughs> but this one is with is actually with me, so if you want to hear my voice, congratulations to my fans. Um, <laughs> Your fans. Shout out Danny Nation. Danny Nation. Shout out to uh, Danny's family. Listen. Aaron Blake, senior political writer from the Washington Post's political analysis blog the fix we talked about he did a ranking of the top 10 presidential candidates from the democratic party there is some abortion talk in this so it's it's on theme um, it's on theme good but it's a really insightful interview if you want to talk about you know where politics politics are going to shake out in the next couple months especially with the midterms it's a great little analysis a little from his perch atop his article so i think here's what mr blake has to say my name is Danny DiCrescenzo, and I'm joined by Aaron Blake, a senior political writer for The Fix, which is the political analysis blog for The Washington Post. Today, he and I will be discussing his most recent rankings of the top 10 Democratic candidates for the 2024 presidential election. Mr. Blake, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Danny. Good to be here. So how long have you been ranking potential nominees for president, and what goes into creating these types of lists? Well, this is something that I've been doing for uh, probably the better part of a decade now. Um, I find it's a helpful way, especially when you're pretty far away from a presidential election, to keep tabs on things and look at what various potential candidates might be doing, you know, even between elections. Um, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's both fun uh, in that it, it kind of allows us to handicap things a little bit, but it's also, I think it gives people what I was talking about, which is a little bit of an update on what these candidates are doing when they may not be at the top of the news, when they might be doing things in their own states that don't rise to the level of national attention. And so I think that's the real benefit of it. And then once we get closer to the elections, we we do this a little bit more frequently, uh, especially as the primaries get underway. And going to your recent rankings in the article that was just published, it lays out this YouGov poll result that shows that only 21% of Democrat-leaning voters would want President Biden to run it back to be the party's nominee in 2024. And you talk about how that number is unusual and could lead to a messy primary. Why is this pessimism about an incumbent unusual, and to what extent does it matter with the midterms right around the corner? Yeah, I think this is a little bit of a sleeping giant issue for the Democrats. And we're not talking about it a whole lot right now because we do have that midterm coming up. These are things that can wait until after that midterm. But when you look at how people feel about Joe Biden, especially even on the Democratic side, there is a real um, uneasiness, maybe a little bit uh, lack of of, uh, commitment to the idea that the incumbent president should or would run for reelection the next time around. Now, I think part of that may have to do with with the the struggles that he has in the polls. I'm sure part of it is is his age. Uh, We've never had a nominee who is in their 80s, which Joe Biden will be uh, come 2024. So there are a lot of factors that are that are involved here. And I think that it's going to be a discussion that the Democratic Party is probably going to have in earnest a little bit more after these midterm elections. It could definitely be a potential Carter Kennedy scenario, as you mentioned in the article in 1980. But going on to your list, it's in order from 10 to 1. AOC, Gavin Newsom, Cory Booker, Sherrod Brown, Roy Cooper, Amy Klobuchar, 
uh, Warren, Harris, Mayor P, and you have Biden at one. We can go into these candidates all day, but which one of these individuals do you think merits the most attention going into November with the midterms coming up? You know, it's, it's really tough because I was talking about how I've been doing these, these lists for a while now. And a lot of times you'll have a previous presidential primary to lean on. Um, and that's certainly the case in the potential 2024 Democratic field. We, we just had a 2020 open presidential primary where a lot of these candidates who you just named off that are on this list uh, ran in that election. At the same time, we didn't really see any of them catch on in, in a really sustained way. It was in some ways like Joe Biden kind of um, uh, won by default. And that, and that sounds a little bit judgmental and probably more judgmental than I want it to be. But it, but it was true that despite all kind of the hype around you know Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, none of these candidates were able to really assert themselves and win consistently in some of these primary states or even top the polls for long periods of time. And so that creates a situation where I think, you know, depending upon if Biden runs again, um, we have a very wide open race in which we have a lot of candidates that people might be familiar with, but that they don't necessarily, we don't necessarily have a great idea about who would enter that race uh, as, as a front runner. I do think that the beginning of that conversation starts with, with uh, Vice President Harris by virtue of her um, her standing as the vice president, but she didn't have a good campaign in 2020. And then the other big one, which is the person I put second on the list behind Biden, is uh, Pete Buttigieg, who I think I talked about how candidates didn't really assert themselves in the last race. He came about as close as anybody did. He, he, ba he basically almost won the first two contests in Iowa and New Hampshire uh, and was kind of deprived of some of the momentum because of the way things were handled in Iowa. I think we could have seen a very different primary if he had won those races more resoundingly and more immediately. Um, and so I think given that and given that he's now not just a, a small town mayor of, of a medium sized city, um, he's a he's a cabinet secretary and a little bit older. That'll give him a little bit more heft uh, should he enter this race for the president in 2024. Yeah, tw that 2020 election was very deep, which was in stark contrast to the Republicans who had the president at the time. But still, because the Republicans still have this figure in Trump who they can really rally around, or at least a good portion of their base will always coalesce around. While the Democrats have always had a lot of diversity in the field. And as somebody like you who looks at the gumption of potential nominees, what are the advantages and disadvantages to a varied primary race? Yeah, I, I think you you raised a good point with the comparison to the Republican primary. We, we had uh, open presidential primaries, uh, you know, on both sides um, as recently as 2016. So we got a sense for what the two sides bases are looking for. I think on the Republican side, it's pretty obvious what they're looking for. And it was pretty much what Donald Trump was delivering. And so we see a lot of Republicans emulating that in a lot of ways. It seems like that's the obvious path for somebody like a Ron DeSantis if they're to run in 2024. Um, I think on the Democratic side, it's a, it's a more complicated uh, calculus. It, it's not entirely clear that the left wants somebody to go in the Bernie Sanders direction or the squad direction. Uh, it's not entirely clear that they want a more moderate uh, you know, politician like Joe Biden is, but, but not necessarily the way he ran that campaign. 
Um, I think it's it's going to be it's going to present a lot of issues for where the party's going to go because there's not really an obvious answer to that question, and so you're going to see a lot of candidates trying to position themselves in a party that hasn't necessarily decided what it wants to be in the same way that the Republican Party has. And that point, I want to talk about someone you ranked kind of low on your list, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, who you could argue has the most cushiony position of all the Democrats. I mean, he just survived that recall election by a pretty wide margin. He exists in this West Coast liberal ecosystem. Why might he not be as high as some people would put him, given his poll numbers and his recent election victory? Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. And, and I kind of go back and forth on Gavin Newsom quite a bit. Um, certainly he's ambitious. I think if there is an open primary, a lot of people expect that he would be a part of it. And that's that's part of these rankings. It's not just how likely to win if they run. It's also how likely they are to run. Um, I, I do think, though, um, despite the the launching pad that he has by virtue of, you know, governing a very big state and, and by virtue of his big recall win, uh, there there is a, a, a question about whether um, Democrats want a West Coast liberal on their ticket. I mean, that's getting into many of the Republican Party's longstanding caricatures of the Democratic Party. And I think, uh, you know, if this is a part a Democratic Party that's looking for a candidate who can win, there are going to be reservations about whether a guy with slick back hair from the West Coast is the right candidate for that. At the same time, I do think that people uh, underestimate um, how moderate Gavin Newsom is, particularly on things like business issues. I think he has a chance to kind of invent himself in the way he wants to for a national audience. And certainly he's shown, uh, he's demonstrated a real political talent that that can't be underestimated in the Democratic primary. Uh, and so certainly he's one to watch. Certainly good points. And you're right. Unlike Trump, who has a sort of national appeal, Gavin Newsom might exist too comfortably in that West Coast space. But I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question, speaking of national things. How do the bombshell, uh, how do the how does the bombshell about the disclosure of the Supreme Court potentially overruling Roe v. Wade impact your list of Democratic contenders. I know it just happened. I know it's so we're still unraveling the consequences of it. But what does this mean for the Democratic Party going into the midterms and the and the primaries in the general? Yeah, I think it, it, there's a real question about the impact it has on the 2022 midterms. Um, I think that is because we're confronting a situation in which the Democratic Party base is not as enthusiastic about voting as Republicans are. And, and so to the extent that were to change because of this decision, that would be significant. As far as presidential politics, I wonder how much it will impact who the Democrats nominate because I would expect the vast majority of the Democratic Party will be on the same page when it comes to what to do next, which is preserving the right to abortions in ways uh, that, you, that you can, uh, certainly not probably via federal legislation, but at the state level. Um, I wouldn't expect there to be too many differences in how the Democrats are going to approach this issue moving forward. And, uh, and that's certainly not necessarily the case on the Republican side, where they have to decide how much they want to restrict abortion now. Uh, but, but the Democrats are, are pretty much in lockstep about what should be done at this point. That certainly seems to be the case. And my last question before I let you go, Mr. Blake, your pick for number one was Biden in spite of his current unpopularity. How confident are you that he will emerge as the nominee come general election time? 
I, I do think that if Joe Biden runs, he probably is the nominee um, by virtue of uh, the fact that most of these candidates wouldn't run against him. Uh, we'd still potentially see that Kennedy Carter situation like you were talking about, where there could be one or two candidates who want to offer a competing vision, maybe from the left wing of the party. Um, but even if he does run, uh, I don't think it's as much of a cinch as it would be in any other situation where where we didn't have some of these dynamics that we talked about before. And so he's certainly number one, but it's a less resounding number one than we generally see with a first term president. Well, we're just going to have to let it play out and we'll see what happens. But once again, that was Aaron Blake, a senior political writer for The Fix, which is the political analysis blog for The Washington Post. He and I just finished up discussing his most recent rankings of the top 10 Democratic presidents for the 2024 presidential election. Mr. Blank, thank you again for your time. Thank you. Enjoying the show? Make sure to tune in every weekday from 8 to 9 a.m. for some more Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. Only on 88.7 FM Radio, Hofstra University. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. All right, another amazing interview from Mr. D. Crescenzo over here. Thank you for that one. There's that one more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We're I know. Not done. I know for everyone listening, if you're if you're not tired of hearing Danny's voice yet, there's <laughs> one more interview. One more. Uh, one yeah, more. exactly. We're gonna move on though. Um, like I said, we had a packed show today. We're gonna talk a little bit about the Met Gala and the amazing outfits that we saw. I mean, last week our amazing reporter discussed the Coachella outfits, so it's only fitting that we discuss our Met Gala outfits. So, Lauren, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing wonderful. I'm very excited to talk about the Met Gala. Great, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear about it. <laughs> Um, okay. The coveted Met Gala was this past Monday. For those of you who don't know, the Met Gala is an event put on and hosted by Vogue magazine and takes place at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Vogue's editor-in-chief, Anna Wintour, chooses the red carpet dress code every year. This year's red carpet theme was Gilded Glamour, and the exhibition inside was titled In America, an Anthology in Fashion. This year's theme was an amazing opportunity for celebrities to embrace the whimsy and extravagance of fashion during the Gilded Era. During this time, America faced a rapid and extreme accumulation of wealth, and due to this extreme accumulation of wealth, the fashion among the elite during the Gilded Age was outrageous and extravagant. Women donned corsets, lots of feathers, detailed hats, fur-lined coats, and flaunted their wealth through the intense detailing of their clothing. Tuxedos and a thick, tightly woven fabric called broadcloth were introduced into men's fashion. New York City emerged from this area as a hub for finance and opulence. What makes this theme even more exciting was the fact that Vogue was actually first published during the Gilded Age in 1892 as a way to record and display the unique and dynamic fashion trends of the time. Long story short, celebrities had a lot to work with this go-round at the Met. As with every Met, there were some disappointments, some shining stars, and a lot of conversation. Personally, I asked three questions when looking at a Met Gala outfit. One, did their look bring the beauty and extravagance that is required of the Met Gala? Two, was it on theme or not? And finally, I ask whether, it, whether or not it was an artistic endeavor. On the carpet, I saw a lot of corsets, lots of feathers, and lots of men in velvet tuxedos. Billie Eilish came in what I would describe as the most accurate silhouette and outfit to the theme. She had a full corset, lots of lace, lace and wore a bustle dress designed by Gucci. She also said that her entire outfit was made of things that Gucci already had on hand, making it an environmentally friendly, on-theme, and gorgeous look overall. Some other notable celebrities that absolutely hit the mark, in my opinion, were Cardi B, Anderson Paak, Evan Mock, Anita, 
Emma Chamberlain, Rosalia, Gigi Hadid, Gemma Chan, Riz Ahmed, and Laura Harrier. What makes these outfits so successful, in my opinion, was the fact that each of them was able to modernize the fashion of the Gilded Age while maintaining the dignity of the theme. Blake Lively, who co-chaired the event along with her husband Ryan Reynolds and Lin-Manuel Miranda, wore a dress that honored the architecture of New York City. As she ascended the stairs, slowly her copper outfit unfolded to reveal a turquoise fabric underneath. This was emblematic of the way New York City monuments, made of copper such as the Statue of Liberty, which was gifted to America during the Gilded Age, patina or turn green. Valentino dressed most of its celebrities in a vibrant magenta color. At first, looks from celebrities like Sebastian Stan and Glenn Coase, who were both wearing a vibrant pink, took me aback and I did not like them. However, after a little bit of digging, I found that the magenta, the magenta color had first been synthesized in the 19th century and was only accessible to the richest people, as it was such an expensive color to create. Another thing that honestly confused me was the number of sunglasses I saw on the red carpet, but I was completely unable to find any historical reasoning for that. One of the most talked about outfits of the night, and the one I was personally dreading, was Kim Kardashian's. Kim was the last celebrity of the night to walk the red carpet. She wore the iconic dress that Marilyn Monroe wore when she sang happy birthday to President John F. Kennedy. There's been a lot of discussion on whether or not she should have worn it, and I personally find the argument as to why she shouldn't have worn it to be more compelling. First and foremost, the dress itself is a piece of history, and taking it out of its controlled environment will inevitably do damage to it, no matter the amount of care that goes into preserving it. There is also this unsettling air of commodification to Marilyn's legacy, despite the fact that she was a real living person. When discussing with the dress's designer, Jean-Louis, Marilyn requested that he make something that only she could wear, which is why the color is her exact skin color and the dress is her exact measurements. I also did not love that Kim styled the dress with a slick back bun and a random fur coat. Many people online also noted how openly talked how openly how she openly talked about how little she ate in order to fit into the dress, which is a damaging message to those who look up to her. At the end of the day, I watched the Met Gala with my pajama pants on inside out. Still, I could go on and on about what celebrities wore, and so could many other people. I think that's half the fun of it. With the time, money, and resources celebrities have to attend the Met Gala, it's amazing to see what they come up with. This go-round, I think a quick Google search could have saved some of them some grief on the internet. Well, thank you, Lauren. I definitely would like to put my own opinion in there, Absolutely. which I said before, um, is that Blake Lively 100% won the entire Met Gala, in mm -hmm. my personal opinion. Janelle Monet, beautiful. Slide. They, look, Slide. they all look <laughs> so good, but I do think that Kim wearing Marilyn Monroe's dress is a little bit almost disrespectful mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. my opinion in terms of like history not even just the fact that it's another celebrity's dress in terms of just like the historical significance of that dress and the fact that you had to take it out of a controlled environment just to wear it for one night yeah it just wasn't worth it if you really wanted to do something like that make a copy make mm -hmm. make it make some sort of maybe like a like a dedication to mm -hmm. marilyn monroe and not actually and the dresses didn't fit and yeah. that was fine also like, let me just say that was the 60s not like the 1960s it wasn't even on theme for the <laughs> 1870s to the 1890s so there was no reason all in all negative slay boo negative slay, <laughs> negative slay. <laughs> okay so yeah that word's been thrown around a lot here this morning slay <laughs> anyway mostly off the air mostly off the air <laughs> but still still 
constant vocabulary. Anyways, okay, so we're gonna move on once again, even though I think I wanna talk about the Met Gala forever because I have a lot of opinions. But again, Mr. Danny DiCrescenzo has another interview for us. <laughs> Maybe I should have spread these out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, uh, we, we packed the show this it's, morning. No, but it's good because um, this was a really fun interview I did with Anna Momigliano. She's a journalist from Milan, Italy, not anywhere mm. here, Italy my ancestral homeland <laughs> and she's she wrote an article for the atlantic about a book from antonio scarati about benito mussolini's rise to power it's a fascinating discussion about fascism in italy and how fascism is lurching back into western democracies today i think it's really relevant with the russian invasion of ukraine and we've seen fascism throw around plenty here in the u.s mostly about the republican party um but i think me talking about the interview won't do it anymore. Just as here is Anna Mumiliano. I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Anna Mumiliano, a journalist based in Milan, Italy. Today, we will be discussing an article she recently wrote for The Atlantic called Mussolini Speaks and Tells Us How Democracy Dies, which focuses on Italian author Antonio Scarati's book about Benito Mussolini's rise titled M, Son of the Century. Miss Mumiliano, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. No problem. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with early 20th century Italian history, what was the political situation like in Italy during the period from when Mussolini founded the National Fascist Party in 1919 after the First World War to the start of his dictatorial reign in 1925? Well, Italy was in a very harsh situation. It was a very poor country. It was also a country that technically won World War One but in practice lost it because, you know, they had so many casualties and nothing in return. Um, and so there was a lot of uh, discontent. For, uh, former soldiers were heavily discontent. And also it was a moment of uh, social upheaval. Um, democracy, as we mean it today, was relatively a new thing. Universal male suffrage, meaning that all male could vote regardless of her education or economic status was introduced uh, gradually um, only in 1919, which meant that suddenly society was changing from an elitist society where only the elite had a say in, in, in public good to a society in which, in theory, everyone could have a say, at least as long as they were men. Women were completely excluded. And so suddenly we had a rise of unions, of the Socialist Party, of the Catholic Party, because the liberal, uh, the elites used to be very secular. So suddenly socialists, Catholics, unions have a say, and, and the bourgeoisie gets really scared. So Italy was a very, very poor a very, very uh, discontented and um, also a very divided country. And it's in this very delicate situation that Mussolini can maneuver his way into power. Of course, and M, some of the century, which just came out in the United States, focuses on his career during that period. And it's a sort of first person account of his ascension as a fascist politician. What particular aspects of the book in terms of his contents or how it was received in Italy drew you towards writing about it? Well, first of all, it's not exactly a first-person account because you follow the perspective of Mussolini, but it's an omniscient narrator that tells the story. So you're not... Well, occasionally you have uh, some um, thought in his mind, but mostly it's a detached narrator that tells the story. 
and you follow it from several perspectives, but the dominant one is Mussolini, which is a fascinating thing because um, this is very much not a pro-Mussolini uh, book at all, but you kind, of, you kind of grasp how really Machiavellian and also uh, politically smart he was and how he used all the weaknesses of this new frail democracy to basically crush it. What there are several aspects on this book, but the one that uh, um, that struck me and the one that I wrote about in the Atlantic Review is that he describes how the liberal bourgeoisie, the, the member of a liberals party, essentially um, help Mussolini not so much to become uh, a dictator, but early on to enter the parliament. Um, when the fascist party was founded in 1919, uh, it didn't get much traction, honestly. They ran for election, but they didn't even enter the parliament. They didn't get one seat. But in 1921, with new election, he ran in a coalition of all people with the liberals. Why? Because the liberals were very scared um, by the rise of the socialists, by the rise of the Catholics, and also they thought they could control Mussolini, which turned out to be a very, very big miscalculation. Absolutely a massive miscalculation. And you write that the lessons presented in the book, quote, will feel poignant to American readers, specifically with how Italy's ruling political class, as you said, was largely responsible for giving Mussolini a legitimate place in the government. Can you elaborate on how you feel that parallel res resonates with United States politics? Well, I think that um, across, you know, the democratic world right now, uh, there is this sense that educated urban liberal elite are kind of, you know, the, um, a beacon against right-wing populism. Like we see all, you know, this rise in uh, nationalistic, populist, uh, populist aggressive, anti-democratic uh, forces. And we tend, you know, as college-educated people living in big cities, we tend to think of ourselves as, you know, the least vulnerable to this kind of appeal, uh, which personally, I think, a bit self-serving. Uh, but also, what happened in Italy, and also Scurati's account of it, it's a very, very interesting case study that shows how actually the people that probably had the, the best cultural instrument that were in the position of not fearing so much, you know, all the turmoil that was happening in Italy, through a series of myopia, miscalculations, um, essentially uh, embraced Mussolini early on. Many other liberals who supported Mussolini in uh, um, 20, 20, uh, sorry, 1921 ended up uh, siding against him. For example, there is this uh, character in Scurati's novel, a real character, the philosopher Benedetto Croce, which is leading Italian liberal philosopher who was an early supporter of Mussolini, but later on uh, sided against him and did it at the time, it was very, very dangerous to say to side against Mussolini. So they were not; they weren't necessarily bad people. Some of them um, ended up in the right on the right side of history. But it's still very poignant to to see how you know they were really tricked, and probably you know, there was quite a bit of guilt in it. Well, for sure. And then there's that the example of how especially on the political right in nations like the United States, or just now with France with the election between Emmanuel Macron and Marie Le Pen, where it was sort of 
you know, the right side of French politics was dominated by a certain figure who was embracing that nationalist philosophy, you would say. I think that's a pretty good comparison. Yeah, right? and also but the people kept keep saying, you know, oh, well, Le Pen tends to be supported by the not so educated, by the not so wealthy, not exactly by the bourgeoisie in Paris. Right now is true, but we keep repeating to ourselves, you know, oh, um, you know, it's the ignorant, it's the poor that support nationalists. Right in this particular moment of history, in some cases it is, but in but it hasn't always been the case. And also, one argument that I sometimes find, you know, when uh, when the nationalist right, uh, when the populist right tends to win election, a lot of people come up with the same. Uh, discourse, oh, well, maybe there's too much democracy. If there is one thing that Italian history can teach us, that it wasn't too much democracy that ended up, that, that brought Mussolini to power. It wasn't because too many people could vote. It was because the elite was very, very scared of too much democracy that it ended up, they say, oh, no, if we have too many, you know, too much freedom, then the socialists or the Catholics will get to power, so let's embrace Mussolini. They were scared of too much democracy. It was actually an elitist move to side with Mussolini, and it, it turned out as the worst choice that they made. It's actually, I'm glad you brought that up because that was my next question, because throughout the piece, you pick at that thread of the disruptive nature of populist politics from Mussolini until today, where you point to Trump's victory or Brexit, and you quote commentator Andrew Sullivan, who spoke to a certain view that, quote, democracy's end when they are too democratic. You know, what are your, if you could elaborate, what are your thoughts on that particular opinion about modern liberal My, democracies? Well, first of all, like what Sullivan wrote, it isn't completely crazy. You know, philosophers like from the Tocqueville, for example, always warn us that, you know, democracy could lead to, um, uh, could, could lead to, you know, a so-called dictatorship of a majority. That's a legitimate concern. But if we look at, Historic uh, history more more than political theory. Historically, and that is especially true of Italy, it happened precisely the other way around. It wasn't like there. There's two ways of seeing of, of reading fascism. Some people say that it was essentially a mass movement, uh, but other people and Scurati clearly chooses the second point of view say that it's a reactionary movement, a reaction to the enter of the masses into politics. It was a reaction. Oh, suddenly the gates are open. We're going to try to close it, uh, close them as, as quick as possible. I, I think that what scares me, honestly, is more, you know, the lack of democracy than too much of it. That's absolutely a valid concern because you know with these with the reactionary issue versus if it as you mentioned the debate whether what kind of movement fascism was whatever the case may be when you you talk about in the article when you had a phone call with scurati you say he wrote it largely in response to a fading consensus after world war ii that fa fascism was definitely you know destined to the dustbin of history right yeah. Um, well, the, the, the consensus started fading. Like, probably to you, you're young, it's ancient history, but in, <laughs> in the mid-90s, when Berlusconi came to power, until the 90s in Italy, there was a huge anti-fascist consensus. Even the right, the conservative right, was proudly anti-fascist. But then, you know, people started forgetting, and then Berlusconi came to power. Berlusconi, of course, he wasn't a fascist, but he brought in his coalition people who described themselves as post-fascists. They were the political hair of Mussolini, 
did not want to bring a dictatorship back, but were quite proudly uh, the descendants of Mussolini. And that, you know, changed everything because suddenly these people were at the government coalition and saw all this big taboo that fascism was the ultimate evil slowly dissolved. And by the time that Scurate started writing this book a decade ago, it was basically gone. So that, yeah, he wanted, you know, he, he told me that basically he wrote this book because he was very worried about this fading consensus and also, but also this fading consensus could allow him to write a book from the perspective of Mussolini, which probably two decades ago would be too much of a taboo. Perhaps that would definitely have been too much of a taboo, but that only begs the question for the modern reader in the Western world, what do you think ought to be the biggest takeaway of Scarati's book? Well, I, uh, I think that Scarati's book, it's, it's really like a book which ultimately, it's a really an epic tale of how a democracy dies. He, he covers five years and you really can see how democracy crumbles um, a centimeter at a time, an inch at a time. It, it's very gradual and there isn't, the end of his book is the pinpoint which usually people take as the beginning of a dictatorship, which we, is when Mussolini not only gets an opposition leader killed, but he claims a responsibility in front of the parliament and the parliament cheer and you, you understand, oh, this is gone. But that just, you know, the tip of the iceberg, you could really see in the five years covered by the book how this democratic crumbles, uh, democratic process crumbles uh, an inch at a time. And I think that, you know, it's really um, an inoculation, you know, uh, against uh, fascism. It's like the uh, Ernest Hemingway quote, how do you go bankrupt uh, gradually, but then suddenly, as I think Mussolini's tale would definitely say, and once again, that was Anna Momigliano, a journalist based in Milan, Italy. And we discussed her recent article she wrote for The Atlantic called Mussolini Speaks and Tells Us How Democracy Dies, which focuses on Italian author Antonio Scarati's book about Benito Mussolini's early career titled M, Son of the Century. Ms. Momigliano, thank you so much for joining me. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Enjoying the show? Make sure to tune in every weekday from 8 to 9 a.m. for some more Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. Only on 88.7 FM, Radio Hofstra University. Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. All right. Thank you, Danny, for interview number three, but two from you today. And there's one more. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't think I can handle one more. We got We got one more story we want to talk about. This one I'm actually really interested in. Dallas, if you want to take it away. Yeah. So something to look forward to coming, hopefully, in 2025, the hotel that is promising to take you out of this world literally speaking. So the, a California space company, Orbital Assembly, have released new plans to develop a space hotel, an actual hotel in space. It would ho house both offices and tourist space, and ha there have been plans floating around since 2019. Orbital Assem Assembly is planning to launch two space stations for tourists. The original design named the Voyager Station would accommodate 400 people and open in 2027, but their newest concept called the Pioneer Station would be much smaller, housing around 28 to 30 people with a takeoff date only three years away. Tim Alator, the Orbital Space Chief Operating Officer, said, the, the goal is to make it possible for large amounts of people to travel, live, work, and thrive in space in an interview with CNN Travel. And I've seen the plans, and they actually look pretty amazing, but I can't imagine going to space for vacation personally speaking and 
Alator said that, who has a background in architecture, said that both hotels would have interiors similar to a luxury hotel on Earth, with the addition of out-of-this-world views. And as of right now, there's little known about the cost of the hotel, but Alator said that he's hoping to make it as accessible to everyone and not just the wealthy people. And a lot of people have had their eyes to the sky, and I just wanted to get you guys' thoughts on the future of the tourism Is industry. Is it really going to be available to the middle class? Yeah, that's, no! that's my thing. I mean, think about it. We had that whole conversation a couple weeks ago about the Disney hotel being mm-hmm. $20,000. Um and that stays on the ground. And that's like a fake space station because of <laughs> yeah, Star Wars. That's fake so space. if if you're actually going to space, are they gonna are, are they gonna be cheaper than the fake Disney space? Because I literally looked at the price of like the SpaceX trip and it was not sure how accurate this uh website was. It was called like Reddit. No, not Reddit. <laughs> it was um a business website, I'm blanking on the name, but it said that the most recent SpaceX trip was fifty five million dollars per seat. Uh, 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 what? So, I don't yes, know that's very affordable. Who's going to space with that much money? And I read in the article, it was like, oh, the stay would be like around a week to two weeks. You would stay up in space and all that. And I was like, how much money would be a week to two how weeks? How much money is a night in space? Well, how do you even space. how do you pay to get there? There's no, but how do you keep track? There's no, you know, there's no sun. There's day, no days. There's no day night cycle in space. So I, what would they judge it by? Yeah, that's the first thing. I also feel like going to space would probably mess me up for mm-hmm. like a month or two by the time I get home. Like, yeah. I feel like I, I'm going to hit the ground and I'm just I'm going to be immobile for yeah. probably a month. Because how do you come back from that? You go to space exactly. and you expect to come home like two weeks vacation time sounds fantastic. But mm-hmm. you come home and you're expected to just go back to work after with being gravity in space. on My, Earth. The thing is. <laughs> They're trying, uh, Alator said that in, for both hotels, they're planning to work with both zero and artificial gravity based on the areas of the hotel you're in. So it's like, there will be some form of gravity, but I can't imagine it would be enough it's gonna to be when Walmart you return. Gravity. It's going to be Walmart gravity. <laughs> That's, I mean, my guess, my guess is that as climate change continues and as the technology that we have improves, this will become common, but I don't think it's going to happen in this decade. Yeah. I think there will, I honestly think by the end of the century, if humanity still exists, <laughs> there will be colonies on other planets, like, you know, Mars or something like that. Yeah. But we'll see. I think it's going to be like The Martian, the book that I love, and then the movie that sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, it's, something about it just seems off to me. It, it, the it fact, doesn't seem the right. The fact that we're struggling with so much on, on Earth today, and then people are like... <laughs> Space hotel. You know what? Like, let's not fix anything. Let's just go to space. Hey, hey, Gilded Age, right? People were coming back from being on the frontier, mm-hmm. you know, the frontier, right? The west of the United States. And they were like, you know, that was their thing. Like, nothing was cool happening on the East Coast. We're going to explore. The, and, great, the and great expansion? The great expansion. And maybe, you know, also commit genocide against Native Americans. All they hopefully that. we don't do that. Yeah. Is- yeah, hopefully we don't find an alien race and <laughs> destroy them. Yeah, of course. It will well, be a flop for us, personally. A flop for... A- Huge flop. Go to space sounds cool, but anything other than that sounds like it would be a disaster. Mm-hmm. That being said... Wait, fun fact. Disaster, right, uh-huh. comes from the well, the roots of the word disaster mean a bad star. So basically, disaster is a perfect Ooh. word to s- simulate a bad Alexa, thing happening in space. was that a, a, Danny, that, a Zinger? Danny Zinger? Not a Zinger, a Danny Fun Danny fact. Zinger? Danny Fun not fact. even producing today. <laughs> All right, well... On that final Danny Zinger, it's going to be the end of our show. So I guess thanks for listening to my first ever producing job. Um, 
I guess on behalf of Danny, Dallas, Lauren, and I, we wish you a good week, and we will be back Thursday.